education and other emotional challenges. Um, and as his uh, brother mentioned, today's class specifically is overcoming perfectionism and other destructive behaviors on the road a healthy lifestyle that fosters emotional wellness. <clears throat> now, what we're going to be going over today is basically part three of a four part model. We'll be finishing the last part tomorrow. And again, if you're just here for part of the model, that's fine. If you get the whole model, even better. So just as a quick kind of catch-up, um, those who are new, and a review for those who um, have been here before. Whenever we have um, some of these kind of problems, uh, depression, anxiety, uh, low self-worth, addiction, whatever it might be, uh, we're sort of taught in the media to think that that's just kind of this random chemical problem that suddenly comes upon us and then we have this you know, brain affliction for the rest of our lives. I have never seen that to actually be supported either in the research or in my actual clinical practice. What I find instead is this sequence of elements that builds toward you know, these different emotional challenges. And that's happy news because there's nothing you can do to just kind of you know, click your fingers and suddenly make your brain be different, okay? But there are a lot of things you can do um, to help with these elements that we're going to be talking about today and throughout this week, okay? So the first element to recognize, and again, I'll just fly through this quickly since some of you have heard this before, is understanding triggers. Every single time I've dealt with anybody with any of these problems, especially depression or anxiety or things like that, always, 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 it's preceded by one or more of these triggers. I'll just real, I'll go through it quickly. Grief, losing someone important to you through death or divorce or separation or someone moving away or graduation, whatever it might be that separates you from when someone who's dear to you. Transition, going through big changes in life, even desired normal changes like high school graduation or retirement or marriage or childbirth, okay? Whenever your life markedly changes, that can be a risk for a depressive or anxiety-producing trigger, okay? Um, and especially if it's sad triggers like your spouse died or you got unwanted divorce or your child you know, gets disabled unexpectedly by falling out of an apartment building or something. I mean, that's going to change your life. Then you have grief and transition. But even just regular old transition can be an incredibly powerful depressive trigger. Uh, conflict. If you're, you know, in conflict with someone you care about, your spouse or your child or your bishop or your god or anybody else, or even with yourself, the party says, I really want to do this, and the person says, no, we really shouldn't do that. Either intrapersonal conflict between you and you, or interpersonal conflict with somebody else uh, is a very powerful depressive trigger. A lot of my clients come in with that one. So quite frequently, for example, if I have somebody coming in for marriage problems, there's also depression. And if they're coming in for depression, there's also relationship problems. Like they're comorbid, they exist together. Uh, lack of interpersonal skills, really common trigger anymore. Just not knowing how to do relationships well, so they continue to crash. You don't know how to set boundaries. You don't know how to form connections. You don't know how to communicate well. And so relationship after relationship struggles, resulting in grief and loss and transition, whatever, and you know, see above. Going on, um, other triggers, abuse and violence, those are some of the most powerful triggers. If somebody, for example, has experienced combat on the battlefield as a, as a soldier, or somebody's experienced um, any kind of abuse, but especially sexual abuse, those are some of the most powerful depressive and anxiety-producing triggers. Injury or illness, 
can often trigger these. We've certainly seen a lot of that. Even just the fear of illness has generated a lot of depression and anxiety over the past couple of years, obviously. Loss. Loss is like grief, except grief is specific to losing someone important to you. Loss can be more general. Loss of an opportunity. Loss of hope. Loss of a of an um, opportunity that was important to you, loss of a job, loss of familiarity, loss of whatever, could be lots of different things. And finally, just disappointment. Thinking that something was going to turn out this way, instead it turned out to be this over here, and it's not as good as what you expected, okay? Any of these triggers individually can be literally a trigger point for a depressive episode, an anxiety episode, being more vulnerable to addiction, whatever. When you have more than one trigger, the danger is even greater. Okay? And if you have a whole lot of triggers, you know, past and present, they tend to build on each other and exacerbate each other. So one of the first things I do, you know, with any of these conditions, if a person's, whether they're coming in for PTSD from their abuse, or a depressive episode, or a panic disorder, or a social anxiety disorder, or whatever, we go through their triggers first. So that we know what the ingredients are. And I don't spend a lot of time with this. We do it in a session, maybe two at the most. What I don't do is sit and have people look at this list for the next three years and say, what else happened to you? What else happened to you? And how do you feel about that? Whose fault is it? You feel so terrible. That doesn't help people get better. That keeps people stuck. And unfortunately, a lot of counselors do just only what I call assessment-only therapy. What else is wrong? What else is wrong? What else is wrong? And before long, you feel like everything's wrong with you and you're broken in so many ways. How can you possibly get any better? Okay? So it's important to know what your triggers are. It's also important not to overfocus on them and just get stuck identifying these. Okay? So that's the first element. And being able to, you know, um, understand how those um, have affected you how those have impacted you is really important. But as we talked about yesterday, people can go through all kinds of trigger experiences and yet not become anxious or depressed or addicted or whatever. Why? What's the difference? Even for people who have a long list of trigger experiences but they don't have those disorders, tends to get to what we talked about yesterday and that we'll build on from today, which is thoughts. How we think about those triggers and experiences, how we think about situations in our lives, ultimately has a lot more emotional power than actually what happens to us. We talked about a lot about that yesterday, so we won't address it a lot today. But just in short, thoughts can either provide a saving resource within to help us weather adversities, storms. Okay? The way we think about something, the beliefs and perceptions that we have going into a situation or dealing with a situation can absolutely be a refuge and a strength. For example, I told one of my classes, I don't remember which one at this point, after a while they start to blur together a bit. At the beginning of this week, I was headed to Education Week as a teacher in my 23rd year, and I knew I was teaching in this, in this particular location. Well, I knew from having um, gone to other classes here before, the sound doesn't tend to be as good and tends to have some light problems. And, you know, so I was feeling a little bit anxious, you know, about being here all three hours the entire week. And just, what's this going to do? And my, you know, well, my husband, just bless his heart, he called me up Tuesday morning just as I was walking in here the first day. He said, honey, I just feel really impressed by the Spirit. Whatever happens in the room this week, you need to stay focused on teaching the one. And if your PowerPoints don't work, or if the sound goes out, or people don't show up to your class, or whatever all those other concerns are, you focus like a laser 
on what you're here to teach, on what your message is, and then you'll, be, you'll get through. You know what? That thought, that priesthood counsel from my eternal companion has sustained me through this whole week. Because this good brother here sitting with me through this whole however many hours. We've had everything going on the last hour. Our PowerPoint died because my, my cord died. Yesterday, um, the sound wasn't working, so I tried to play a song on the piano, and the piano's completely out of tune, so the sound didn't work, and the piano did. All of the things that I feared happened. But you know what? It's been okay. It's been okay. Because those who have been here have been able to receive what I prepared. And I will go home feeling good about what's happened here because I've been able to do what my Heavenly Father sent me here to do. And some of you, bless your hearts, have come to me after and say, you know what? I was the one you were sent for. That thing you said or that thing you sang or that thing you shared is what I most needed to hear. Those have sustained me. Those thoughts, those timely impressions and pieces of feedback have been the thoughts that have been a saving resource for me within this week's adversity storms as the piano didn't work, and the sound didn't work, and the PowerPoint broke, and this, and that, you know. Sometimes life really does happen. Sometimes the triggers happen to the best of us. When, not if, those triggers hit, the way we think about them can either sustain us, buoy us up, pull us through, you know. As it was also for, and mentioned before in this class, Joseph Smith in the midst of Liberty Jail, who in the midst of his deepest, darkest cry of, where are you, God? Why are you letting all these terrible things happen? Was given thoughts to sustain him. Peace be unto thy soul. If thou art called to pass through adversity, the Son of Man hath descended below them all. God will be with you forever and ever. The scriptures are full of these kinds of perspectives, these kinds of thoughts that get us through. Or there's been a number of times that I received priesthood blessings that told me exactly the things that I needed to do, the things I needed to focus on. I'll tell you one of the most recent, because this may be relevant for some of you. In some of my classes, I've shared that my youngest son just got married a couple weeks ago. So when I go home, it'll be to an empty, empty, empty nest. It's kind of scary after all these years. Happily, he's not leaving till tomorrow. So I just found out before I start my classes today, I'm going to go home right after this class and spend about five hours with him and see all his slides from the honeymoon because they're still in our basement for one more night. Then I'll come back up here and I will at least have had that last moment with my kid, which I didn't think I was going to get, you know. But in the midst of life's challenges, life's struggles, and kind of honestly fearing this transition, I went to my husband for a blessing. You know what I was told? I wasn't planning on sharing this, so maybe somebody here needs to hear this. That inspired blessing said, as you go through this transition, which you so fear, of having your children leave home, trying to redefine yourself as a woman, as a professional, as a mother, after this time, know this. This is only the most recent of thousands of transitions that you have been through since you came into existence as a child of God. And there are thousands of transitions waiting after this one. And everyone holds its lessons and its keys and its opportunities for growth. So know that as scary as this is, you are not alone in the midst of this. Heavenly Father knows what's waiting for you and he will guide you to what's next. It's one of the reasons we value so much that beautiful song, Be Still My Soul, which includes the phrase, Be Still My Soul, 
that God doth undertake to guide the future as he has the past. Thy hope, thy confidence, let nothing shake. All not mysterious will be brightened at last. Be still, my soul, the waves and winds still know his voice who ruled them while he dwelt below. Those kinds of sustaining thoughts. Come, come, ye saints, no toil nor labor, fear, but with joy wend your way. Literally, those thoughts come with saints across the plains. So, thoughts can provide a saving resource within to help us weather adversity storms, which is what we talked about all hour yesterday, so that's about as much as I'm going to say about today. But the idea, we can choose our thoughts. We can feed our minds with thoughts that buoy us up. Or, thoughts also have the power to create additional layers of needless, distracting, unproductive pain. And we spent a lot of time yesterday talking about the kinds of thoughts that tend to bring us down into depression and anxiety and anger. And I'm not the only teacher. I know at least two other teachers who spent the whole week this week talking about the inner critic and all those mean little things we tend to say to ourselves and the destructive, negative thoughts that fill our minds. This is one of Satan's favorite ways of bringing down good people. Okay? I mean, after all, what can the guy do? He's a spirit. He can't throw us across the room. He can't beat us up physically. But what he can do is whisper. Right? He can send his fiery darts, as we're told about in the Armor of God sequence in the New Testament, through those whispers of negativity about ourselves and our world and our spouse and our kids and our future. In such a way that if we're not careful, it can very much bring us down. And every single time, with that exception, in 35 years that I've dealt with somebody with any of these mental health problems, you know, the anxiety, depression, addiction, OCD, uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, whatever it is, always, always, it starts with one or more trigger experience every time. And it's exacerbated by one or more of these negative patterns. You know the good news about that? You can learn to turn these around. I'll tell you what I think is the most devastating thing you can take, say to a person who's struggling with depression or anxiety. This is, this is it. This is the most devastating, destructive, painful um, thought that can bring people down even worse. I'm sorry, the fact that you have these symptoms today means you're probably going to struggle with this chemical imbalance forever and you're going to need to have product forever. There is nothing more depressing or anxiety producing than that message. Now, does that mean I think nobody should ever, ever, ever in their lives go on medication? No. There's sometimes, if I'm going to get a root canal, I'm going to want that Novocaine for a period of time. Thank you very much. But it would not be helpful for me to stand that Novocaine forever, especially if they didn't bother to fix my root canal while I was on the Novocaine. And unfortunately, brothers and sisters, that is what's happened all too often. The emotional Novocaine is being distributed for months or years or decades at a time but the condition is actually being fixed, right? Fixing it means identifying the triggers, identifying the thoughts, identifying the behaviors, identifying the relationship patterns that are feeding the problem and replacing those with things that work better. It's work. It isn't automatic. Nobody can give you that in the pill bottle, okay? So for some of my clients, they're on medication for a period of time because they were kind of overwhelmed. They felt like they couldn't, okay, you know? But we work to replace those things that meanwhile have been feeding their depression, anxiety, whatever, their entire life. Okay? And some of them find after periods like, oh, we don't need the chemical novocaine. 
And some of them choose not to go there in the first place. They choose just to kind of dive right in and learn these skills from day one that they never needed, okay? So whichever course, you know, there's a, there can be a role for that resource, but if that's the only resource, researchers have found that is the course that is most likely, out of any of the possible approaches to these problems, to result in relapse and chronicity, meaning your problem that could have been a two-month problem because, you know, you got dumped by your boyfriend or whatever else, ends up being decades of disability, okay? That is literally the, the, the approach. Medication only is the approach that most commonly creates that because, again, it's like the Novocaine without fixing the root canal. Fix the root canal! And that's what we're here to teach you how to do because the good news is these things that can be changed are within your power. Now, industries don't like to tell you that because it's bad for business, right? But I am here to tell you that because that is what my Heavenly Father sent me here to tell you. It has been my ministry now here at Education Week for over 20 years. Okay? It is what I have taught my clients in my practice for over 35 years. And it's been delightful to see people who were trapped in these conditions that initially the many, the many of them were told would be chronic. And they're not. They're only chronic if you continue to do what feeds the problem. The second you stop feeding the problem or replace it with things that make you well, Things start to change, not all at once, not miraculously, all of a sudden everything's different, but a little bit at a time, okay? So thoughts are part of that. But thoughts, when they lift you up or take you down, always, always lead to element number three, which is behavior. Whatever we think, and then the behavior is what we're going to be focusing on today, on the heels of these other two ideas. We are always going to engage in behavior that is consistent with what we believe. Okay, if I, um, let, let's say, if I have a client, let's say he's a 58-year-old man. He's worked for the same company for the last 30 years, most of his adult life. And he comes to my office one day and says, you know what, they, they just fired me. They fired me. And, and worse than that, I'm going to get my pension. You know, they, they said they just they need to move in new, new directions. They can hire four more younger guys for half of what they were paying me, and I, I'm never getting in a job again. If that man starts thinking, this means I'm worthless, this means I'll never work again, this means I won't be able to provide for my family, then what's his behavior going to be like if that's what he's thinking? How likely is he to go out and look for another job? You know, he's probably going to sit, you know, on the couch, kind of scrolling through, you know, video games or, you know, whatever, and not put his applications out there and not try to do whatever, yell at his wife and she bugs him and goes, oh, are you looking for applications today? Whatever. His thoughts will set him up for behavior. I told the story yesterday um, of two young women I had who'd both been sexually abused, but who had very, very, so they had the same basic trigger, but their behavioral patterns were really different. One girl was promiscuous, drinking, not going to school, yelling at her parents, kicked out of home. And the other girl was doing all, everything right. She was going to church, going to school, you know, respectful of her parents and whatever. They had the same trigger experience, but they had completely different thought patterns. Because the girl whose behavior was so terrible was told when she, you know, told her mother, you know, what happened, the mother said, I can't, you know, you little slut, how could you let him do that to you? And so, what did that girl learn as far as the thoughts? I am a little slut, this is my fault, this is all the guys want from me, I let it happen, and the thoughts led her to those behaviors that I just mentioned. 
trying to numb the pain of that through her addictions, trying to find some guy, you know, that would care about her inside. And she'd been taught by her abuse, well, you know, there's only one good way to get a guy to care about you, so I didn't care about so here we go, you know. Um, school seemed irrelevant because she was just a little slut anyway, you know. Her thoughts set her up for that behavior, right? Whereas girl number two, whose trigger actually was way worse. Her abuse was way more serious. But when she told her mom what happened, the mom said, I'm so sorry, honey, that this happened to you. This is not your fault. And we are going to be here for you, and your Heavenly Father is here for you. We'll get you whatever help you need. You're going to be okay. So those are the thoughts in girl number two's head. So what does girl number two then do? She goes to her bishop who gives her more of those affirming thoughts and the support and priesthood blessings and everything else. She comes to counseling. She continues to go to school. She continues to build the foundations of her life rather than believing her life is not over because of what had happened to her. See, any situation you can name starts with that relationship trigger is impacted by what we believe about that trigger and then is reflected in our behavior, okay? Now there's a number of different behaviors that impact and are impacted by depression. So again, behavior is an inevitable byproduct of our thoughts, whether positive or negative. And we see a thousand examples of scriptures of people who are able to do incredible things because of what they believed because of the thoughts that were sustaining them. I love the story, for example, of Abinadi, who had, like me, a very clear message, but his audience was not quite so welcoming as you guys, <laughs> right? And they tried to take him down, and they said, you know what? My God told me I have a message for you people, and I'm going to deliver it. And then, when I'm done, whatever you do to me, it's fine with me. I'll just go back to heaven. You know, and whatever you do to me, just, just know that's what's going to happen to you. And sure enough, that's exactly what happened. And he finished his message. Was it scary? Was it a scary circumstance? Of course. But his thoughts strengthened him and sustained him. The scriptures are full of those kind of thoughts. Okay? Um, so look at this little image here. The continuum of depressive behavior. You can do the same kind of continuum with anxiety or addiction or anything. But this, this is a depression specifically as an example. Severe depressive behavior may include harm to self or others, suicidal behavior, okay? Those are the really scary depressive behaviors that we most fear, you know, in our loved ones or others struggling with uh, severe depression. But there's also moderate level behavior, addictive behavior, self-sabotage, maybe we eat too many donuts, maybe we um, don't show up to work on time, Maybe we say something stupid in a relationship that destroys that relationship. Those are those things are again more overly negative. You know, we say negative things because guess what? We're thinking negative things, and so we sabotage our relationships. Those are really, really common patterns of depressive behavior when it's on a moderate level. On the mild level, um, the most common of all depressive behaviors is to withdraw. You know, you don't feel like talking to anybody, so you don't. You think you're kind of worthless and poisonous. You don't want to infect other people with your poison, so you just kind of stay away. And also, passivity and inaction. If you, again, believe as depression and anxiety and stuff teaches you, nothing's going to work out, everything's going to be terrible, I'm going to fail anyway, so I try. It's going to be really normal to just kind of slip into passivity and inaction. Now, is it as serious as direct suicidal behavior? Of course not. So it's way better to identify these kinds of patterns when they're teeny tiny little babies, when they're still mild. They're way easier to fix when they're mild. So here's a question for you. 
So which weed would you rather pick? <laughs> something that looks like this, or something like this, or a big huge tree in your yard, right? It's way easier to solve a problem when it is still small. So, let's look at one pattern of thinking linked to behavior that is very, very common with depression, anxiety, addiction, and so on. I call it the three Ps, okay? The first thing is perfectionism. Now, we live in a religious system that teaches us, be therefore perfect, be even as I am. And if we're not really, really careful, we can get seduced into thinking that means, I need to be exactly perfect in every single thing right now, or I'm hopeless and worthless, and I'll never make it back to the celestial kingdom. Right? That is not the doctrine. The doctrine is the perfecting of the saints, growing line upon line, precept upon precept, toward that steady, distant goal that we progress a little bit at a time. But perfectionism doesn't give us that time. Perfectionism assumes that we can do, we should be able to do everything perfect exactly right now and things should go exactly, you know, that's perfectionism. Well, what perfectionism tends to do is lead to procrastination. If I think that my job is to do it perfectly and I wake up and I'm not feeling so confident or so smart, then I'm not going to really dive into that thing I need to do perfect because I'm probably not going to do a good job. I'll wait till tomorrow because tomorrow I'll probably do it perfect, right? And then that happens day after day. And that could be whether you need to clean a room, or write a research paper, or prepare a PowerPoint for your next education class, or whatever it might be, right? Procrastination inevitably feeds out of perfectionism and tends to lead to the third of these three Ps, paralysis. Where suddenly we have so many things we procrastinated, so many things we think we have to do perfect, so many ways we feel like we're never going to measure up, so we just don't do anything and we just stay trapped. That's actually a really, really common dynamic that leads to that passivity, withdrawal, avoidance that we just talked about on the last slide, right? And absolutely is a, a, um, associated with depression, but also, as I said, with anxiety and some of these other conditions. So let's kind of break this apart in the spirit of what we talked about as far as thoughts leading to behavior and look at what the kind of thoughts tend to be that lead to those behaviors. First of all, with perfectionism, it tends to be something like this. It all has to be done right now. It must be done to the highest standard. No mistakes can be tolerated. Okay? And then what tends to, you know, if, if we kind of go that route, it goes to procrastination, then it tends to be, I'm not up to this right now. Maybe tomorrow would be better. So we procrastinate, right? And our behavior is procrastination. And then if that goes on long enough, it gets to that state where these things pile up and pile up and pile up, then it might go to thoughts like, now it's too overwhelming. I'll never get all of this done. So then we get even more trapped, even more paralyzed, even more whatever, okay? That tends to be kind of some of the thoughts that generate that behavior that leads to perfectionism, procrastination, and paralysis. So, in situations like this, we can learn to talk back to the dragon, okay? To talk back to our inner critic, to talk back to that negative inner voice, that chatterbox, whatever you want to call it. Here's some examples. You know, when we hear, you know, the, the voice of perfectionism say, it has to be done right now, the highest standard, we can learn to say back something like, I can do this in small chunks, a little at a time, Good enough will be good enough. Mistakes are how I can tell I'm growing. 
you know, it's become um, uh, popular in the last few years to talk about self-talk, using positive self-talk. This is an example of that. What you say in your own head is the most important thing anybody will ever say to you. Other people can kind of launch a series of thoughts like those two girls I told you about, but what you say to yourself in your head, day after day, hour after hour, is more, more powerful than any other force. The good news is you can learn to have 100% control over that. And it begins by simply becoming aware first of what it is you're saying to yourself, okay? My husband gave me the great, a great gift the first year we were married as it regards this. Um, I tended to do really well in school. I have a lot of faults, but one of my strengths is I was always really good at school. I'm pretty much straight A's without trying. It's just one of my strengths. Other things were not so easy. But my husband was one of those who had to work really hard for seats, right? And so um, we happened to be married right before I started my last year of graduate school. So I had a lot of research papers to do, and I write pretty easily. Um, but it was during the period of time before we had these things, you know, I was typing on an electric typewriter or whatever. And Steve and I were working in the same office, and one, at one point he finally said, Honey, stop it! You need to stop it! I'm like, stop what? He says, stop beating yourself up! I'm like, what? He says, Honey, like, every ten minutes, you're saying, Carrie, you're so stupid! So, honey, you're not stupid. You're one of the smartest people I ever met. You know, you breathe and you get straight A's. You're not stupid, so please stop beating yourself up. Please stop treating yourself badly. I don't know what the heck he was talking about. But it kind of alerted my awareness. I'm like, well, what is it he's responding to? Now, within 10 minutes, I found myself once again feeling frustrated. going, oh, I'm so Wait, wait, that's that thing he said not to do it. Well, why was I going to say I'm so stupid? That happened a couple times before I figured out what was going on. Like I said, I was typing on an electric typewriter, right? And for those of you old enough to remember those archaic devices, <laughs> they have this feature where if you happen to press a wrong letter, there is no nice little backspace that it just makes it suddenly go away, right? You have to get out the correction fluid or the correction tape and put, you know, tape, blow, you know, put the, the paint on there. And even then, it still didn't look that great. Kind of blow on it. And then, you know, put the character back on and it still looked like garbage. And so I realized that's what was happening. Every time my fingers would hit a wrong letter, my mouth would say, oh, Carrie, you're so stupid. <laughs> I'm so grateful for the awareness that my husband gave me because... Guess what? Calling myself stupid, beating myself up, was not helping the paper get done. It was getting in the way. It was contributing to discouragement rather than contributing in a positive way. Okay? So becoming conscious of what it is we say to ourselves. One of the first um, things I do with every client is have them start keeping a mood lock. Where they keep track of when they start to feel a little down, whether down is depressed or anxious or insecure or embarrassed or angry or whatever it is, start to write down three things. First of all, the situation, what they're going through at the time, kind of like I just said, I'm typing and I hit a wrong thing. Second is um, uh, feelings. What am I feeling? I'm feeling um, anxious. I'm feeling stupid. I'm feeling sad, whatever. And then finally, what thoughts are going through my head? Invariably, what my clients find is this. There is a discernible pattern that pretty much every time they feel terrible, they fall into this routinized way of talking to themselves is destructive. Once we know what it is, 
then we can go to work replacing it. It's kind of like Sherlock Holmes. You gather the clues first, get all the data, all the evidence, and then you solve the puzzle. Or like the mechanic who does a, a diagnostic on the engine before he goes tinkering with the actual hoses and wires and stuff. The diagnostic is really, really important, okay? Figuring out what is it exactly that my head is saying to me right now when I'm feeling terrible, okay? So these are some of the kinds of things our heads tend to say to us in the midst of perfectionism and how we can learn to replace those and talk back. Second thing, if it gets to the procrastination, I'm not up to this right now, maybe tomorrow will be better. We can learn to say things like, whether I feel like it or not, it needs to be done. I'll get started the day, then do some more tomorrow. And if it gets to the point of paralysis, of feeling totally stuck, not able to do anything, it's overwhelming, I'll never get all this done. Then we can learn to say to ourselves something like, I can get this done a little at a time and over the process of time. Now, that's all relevant whether you're, you know, um, putting together a garden or putting together a research paper or simply building a soul. Things are built a little bit at a time. I told my last class, this beautiful, you know, the room that we're in was built literally a brick at a time. Nobody came in and went, and all of a sudden this room exists. Somebody had to put up beams and girders and wires. I've done a little bit of, I had, had some construction done in my house. It's always amazing how step by tiny little step things get done. Went to the temple last night, saw that same progression. You know, you've, you've heard the same story, the creation story. Even for somebody as powerful and smart as God, he didn't click his fingers and all of a sudden, poof, the world was there. A little bit of time, things got planned and carried out step by step. And at the end of each of those days, he didn't beat himself up because it wasn't all done and all perfect yet. He said, this is good. This is good. This is good. We can learn to do the same thing. Now here's some other ideas that sort of feed that um, perspective. Joseph Smith said, when you climb up a ladder, you must begin at the bottom and ascend step by step until you arrive at the top. And so it is with the principles of the gospel. You must begin with the first and go on until you learn all the principles of exaltation. But it will be a great while after you have passed through the veil before you will have learned them. It is not all to be comprehended in this world. It will be a great work to learn our salvation and exaltation even beyond the grave. See, Paul wasn't kidding when he talked about the church being for the perfecting of the saints. If, they were, if we were already perfect, then what's, what's left to do the perfecting of? We're here to grow and progress and learn and develop a little bit at a time to ascend that ladder step by step. Even for the best of us, there's no way of jumping right to the top. Even for Jesus Christ, the sinless one, Section 93 tells us even for him, he had to learn and grow grace for grace, level by level, a little bit at a time. Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature, in favor with God and man. Even he didn't pop into the world as a newborn infant with all of his perfect qualities perfectly developed. He had to learn. He had to grow. And if it was true even for him, the sinless one, even more true for us. I also love this perspective from Paul. Add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that you shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now if you think about a specific example of Paul, 
or Peter, or John, or Joseph Smith, or any of them, you see this pattern. They didn't have all of these qualities to begin with. And Peter in particular, he makes me laugh. I love Peter. If you've seen The Chosen in the particular, yeah. um, <laughs> you know, Peter starts out, and this is reflected in scripture, just kind of this impetuous kind of guy who just sort of speaks his mind. He's just, you know, he's a go-getter. He's enthusiastic, but he's not very smart at first. He doesn't really think about what he's doing or saying. And so many times you just see the Savior sent to do a head going, oh my gosh, Peter, did you really just say that? But who did Peter grow into? And actually, it was Peter that said this. I think it's in 2 Peter. I didn't put the reference. I forgot. 2 Peter. He was the one who taught this great principle. I learned this in my mission. I started with a range of strengths. I was really good at learning stuff. Like I said, I was a good student. But I did not understand the Argentine culture. I thought some of the things they did were kind of dumb, to tell you the truth, like sit, sit, sit and suck mate all day, which is this herb tea that people would pour sugar in. And it was against mission rules, and yet my missionary companions from Argentina just loved this, could not understand this. I was really judgmental. So while I was smart, I started a mission not very kind, not very merciful, not very understanding, not very patient at all. But continuously, one after another, I was put with sisters who weren't very book smart, but they were kind, they were respectful, they were merciful. And over the process of time, I got to learn from them the things I was not so great at, and they got to learn from me the things they weren't so great at. And we grew and progressed together by learning from each other's strengths and weaknesses. That's tend how it tends to work in this world. None of us just click our fingers and become perfect all at once. And we're not supposed to. I also love this insight from wonderful C.S. Lewis. Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house at first, perhaps. You understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right, stopping the leaks in the roof, and so on. You knew those jobs need to be done. And you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house around in a way that hurts abominably and does not make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage. But he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. Now I will tell you one of the things that I love so much about this topic is how much it has freed me personally. I was the oldest of seven children, the oldest child of two oldest children. And it's true what they say about oldest kids. We expect to boss everyone around. We expect to be in control of everything. And we do expect ourselves and others to do everything perfectly, by and large. This was a, a weakness that had me by the throat for decades of my life. But with the help of some of these ideas that I just shared with you, and some of the strategies we'll be talking about, that's no longer the case. Now I can kind of laugh things off if I'm not perfect, if other people aren't perfect, if my, you know, um, <laughs> PowerPoint dies in the middle of a presentation, or whatever. I, I could not have dealt with that 20 years ago. I've learned how. I have learned how to deal with disappointments and obstacles a lot better than I used to. One of the things that was the most useful for me in growing into this new perspective and being able to help clients with it other, otherwise was through an experience with construction in my house um, and, and watching a circumstance that, that uh, 
uh, just the, the process of my husband wanted a man cave, right? So we had this weird little L kind of shape at the end of our family room. So we decided to turn it into a man cave by putting a wall up. I could not believe how many steps were required and how much mess was involved just for that tiny little construction project of one teeny wall. It's probably not bigger than from the edge of stage to here, just a wall with a door, that's it. It took a long time. They had to put beams in, they had to put sheetrock in, they had to put wires in, they had to put a doorknob on, had, you know, a lot of steps for one single thing. Construction is a step-by-step -step process. And I had an experience with my husband during that period of time that I'm gonna share with you now through um, the song that I put together telling the story. This is called Under Construction. We planned a quiet and romantic getaway. Leave the kids with grandma, be alone for just a day. But as we arrive, we're checking at our local hotel. And looked around the lobby, how our eager faces fell. The sound of pounding hammers echoed through unpainted walls. Scaffolding and drop cloth littered up unfinished halls. The restaurant was closed, room service limited, it said. And a scribbled cardboard sign next to the front desk read. Please excuse our mess, we're under construction. We know it's all inconvenient, but it's true. The builders are working hard each day to make things better in every way. And when all of this remodeling is through, we'll be even better set for serving you. Thank you. 
So if you every so often, you or a loved one ends up in a situation where stuff has to be reconstructed, rebuilt almost from scratch, don't be surprised. The carpenter knows what he's doing. The builder is working hard each day to make things better in every way. Now, I went through an experience just over 20 years ago, the hardest thing I ever went through in my life. I've mentioned it sometimes before in some of these classes. I lost my youngest son halfway through a pregnancy. I was devastated. Talk about a depressive trigger. I had that trigger and transition because he was my youngest child and I knew there wasn't time to bring any more children to earth. I was too, too old. And so that whole season of my life was over, so transition. And then I, then I did the thought, self-blame, it's probably my fault, God thinks I'm not good enough to be a mom, and I probably was under too much stress, that's why they used you know, I was doing all of it. And then I would do what, you know, I, I fell for a while into that depressive behavior of withdrawal and avoidance and not doing anything, and just kind of sitting and being depressed and whatever, yelling at my kids that I did have, and, you know. So I was falling into all of it. And then one day, about six months after that sad experience, I woke up to a very specific message of the Spirit, which said, and I quote, Carrie, redesign your life. Didn't know what that meant. Redesign your, your life, well, what does that mean? Well, it came step by step. Some of the specific steps were kind of weird. You know, the Spirit of the Lord said to me, get the hands to the DI. <laughs> like, why? Well, I looked at my closet, pretty much everything in my closet during that period of my life was either black or gray or navy blue. It was depressing! Well, we were poorer than dirt back then. We still had five little kids at home, you know, and I wasn't working very much. So I went to the DI, spent 30 bucks, came home with like 10 beautiful sweaters in every possible color, yellow and pink and green, colors I'd never worn in my life. And he started just having different colors on my body. You can see what I'm wearing today. You know, it's not black. <laughs> you know, every, every day this week, I wore a different color, intentionally. Color is powerful. It gives different messages to our brain than just looking in the mirror and saying black all the time, okay? That was one part of redesign your life. Another part was, it was important for us to de-junk our house, and sadly, especially to get rid of all those baby items, the crib, the clothes, extra diapers, all those things we had lovingly set aside for that child. We found someone else who needed them, someone who was pregnant with our first child. We gave them away. I cried the whole time, but I felt better after to get rid of the artifacts of that prior season of my life, right? Did jump to a whole bunch of papers during that period of time. Started being more careful. What's going on here? Okay, Whew. it was scary because we had a problem with the computer last time. Um, a bit of spite change. And one of the most important things was I learned to change what I put into my body and how to change how I um, dealt with time. My display changed a little bit to me here. Um, I have a lot more I was going to share with you, so I'm just going to go back to this one. Let's see. We're almost out of time. Did you talk about that one? Let's see. You can go ahead to that slide if you want. <laughs> you talk about that concept. Um, Those are, that's a quick grid of some of the kinds of things we can learn to trade in, to change. But one of the most important ideas that I want to make sure I get to, even for the three minutes we have left, is this one, physical. Um, let's see where we are. Oh. Cure for everything, all these different disorders ultimately boils down to get a life, a real life, 
in the real world, eating real food, interacting with real people, experiencing real achievements, which can bring about real connection, real satisfaction, and real joy. So I'm going to jump through this. Okay. I'm going to jump through this. I'm going to go through some more detail in a sec. Okay, this is the idea I wanted to get to. The brain, like the heart, is a physical organ. It needs the same kind of supplies and processes to function properly. So, what helps your body helps your brain. What hurts your body hurts your brain. Even if you have the most magnificent vehicle, any car manufacturer knows what kind of fuel is needed for effective performance. Even the finest quality vehicle will sputter and fail if deprived of the proper fuel. Your brain is no different. I had to learn that one time when I was doing all this stuff, the cognitive and everything I learned in graduate school about overcoming depression, but I was still struggling. And I woke up one day, the spirit says, Carrie, what's your brain? I'm like, I don't know, you tell me, you created it. He said, your brain is a physical organ that is fed by physical supply. So what are you feeding this brain? Now I get a jump forward. See, let me get, let you get that. Most commonly mentioned dietary recommendations for depression management. Um, short version, stuff that is whole, natural, grew out of the ground, is good for your body, good for your brain. Helps prevent not just depression, anxiety, everything else, but also cancer, heart disease, COVID, everything else, okay? Um, now this is an idea that you may not have thought of, but I want to make sure we get to in these last few seconds we have left. The word of wisdom, a brief summary, okay? We heard Elder Cook talk about this before. You know, we're really good with this typically as uh, Latter-day Saints, what's forbidden? Okay, we, you know, stay away from alcohol, coffee, tea, tobacco, so on. And but that's not the only things in the Word of Wisdom. The Word of Wisdom also recommends stuff that grows out of the ground. Okay? Fruits and vegetables and herbs and grains. And, you know, when that stuff's not available, ever so often sparingly in times of winter and famine, stuff that's been recently eaten something that's been alive. Okay? Now, I realized, thinking about this, because again, we tend to do really, really good with the, you know, avoiding the forbidden area, and of course, we, as Elder Cook said, we experience the blessings of doing that. We don't a lot of time tend to think about making sure we're getting enough of what's recommended. But here's this interesting middle column that is neither forbidden nor recommended. Here's some pictures of some of these middle column items, not mentioned. <laughs> Sugar, chocolate, pop, Fritos, fast food, medications. Okay, here's a more comprehensive picture here. Okay, here's some of the things that are not forbidden, but also are not recommended. You said no, the last one is green jello. Yes. <laughs> 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 carrots. Yeah, even if there's carrots in it, carrots, you can keep the carrots, get rid of the jello. Okay. Here's the thing I finally realized about that wonderful law. Promise blessings for obedience. You've read these. Health and able, bear on their bones. Wisdom and great treasures of knowledge. Shall run and be walk, not be weary, walk and not faint. The destroying angel shall pass by them and not slay them. Those principles, those promises, don't come right after the thou shalt not. They don't come after stay away from alcohol and tea and all that kind of stuff. They come after the recommended portion. If we want the entire blessing, we keep the entire law. We pay attention to what is recommended, and we mostly consume that, rather than something that isn't necessarily against the word of wisdom, but also isn't necessarily for it. Here's what President Benson had to say about that, as it relates to mental health. 
Food can affect the mind and deficiencies in certain elements are in the body can promote mental depression. In general, the more food we eat in its natural state and the less that is refined without additives, the better it will be for us. Now keep in mind, this man was not only the prophet of the Lord, he was the Secretary of Agriculture for the US, you know, the, the, the US agriculture when he was in his younger years. He knew something about nutrition. To a significant degree, he also said, we are an overfed and undernourished nation, digging early grave with our teeth, lacking the energy that could be ours because we overindulge in junk foods. And finally, to a great extent, we are physically what we eat. Most of us are acquainted with some of the prohibitions of the word of wisdom, such as no tea, coffee, tobacco, or alcohol. But what needs additional emphasis are the positive aspects. The need for vegetables, grains, um, fruits and grains, particularly wheat, that's before they poisoned wheat. <laughs> we need a generation of people who eat in a healthier manner. I'm gonna jump to this last thing here. The brain, like the heart, is a physical organ. It needs the same kind of processes and supplies to function properly. So what helps your body helps your brain. What hurts your body hurts your brain. Basic supplies for a healthy brain, a healthy body. Again, healthy food, exercise, clear water, actually sleeping at night, getting sunlight. Here's the very last quotation for the day. Then I'll let you go. Another uh, from President Benson. Salvation is nothing more or less than the triumph over all our enemies and put them under our feet. And to quote Prophet Joseph. We can rise above the enemies of despair, depression, discouragement, and despondency by remembering that God provides righteous alternatives. <coughs> to lift our spirits and send us on our way rejoicing, the devil's designs of despair, discouragement, depression, and despondency can be defeated in a dozen ways, namely repentance, prayer, service, work, health, reading, blessings, fasting, friends, music, endurance, and goals. To press on in noble endeavors, even while surrounded by a cloud of depression, will eventually bring you out on top into the sunshine. His talk, Do Not Despair, I highly recommend as a follow-up to this talk. The major point is, as we choose thoughts, as we choose behaviors that tend toward health and wellness, we build mental health, we build physical health, we build healthy brains, and yes, healthy chemical balance of our brains. All of those things impact that. As we go on the other side of the line, do things that are not so good for us, we're going to struggle. These are choices. We have so much power in these things, brothers and sisters. So we can make healthy choices, redesign our lives, and reap the joy that comes from that is my prayer. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. amen.